Welcome everyone to Between the Lines, a podcast produced by the Louis Jacobs Foundation and committed to Rabbi Jacobs's belief that the quest for Torah is itself Torah. My name is Simon Eder and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new paths on the quest for Torah. And it's wonderful again to be welcomed by the director of the Louis Jacobs Foundation, our very own Rabbi Adam Zagoria Moffat, who is also Rabbi of St. Albans Masorti Synagogue in the UK. And he is editor-in-chief of Izun Books. Wonderful, Rabbi Adam, to have you back. Thank you so much for joining today as we explore Vayishlach together. And maybe maybe to begin, let's jump straight into what you find interesting about the way that Jacob prepares to meet Esau. Thank you for having me back, Simon. It's always a treat to be here. And there's so much in this week's parasha to talk about, especially in current circumstances. It feels, as always, terribly relevant. But I suppose what really strikes me about Jacob's preparation and Jacob's mental state is that you get the sense of this looming confrontation and it feels like he is preparing to die in some way, which makes sense because he believes that Esau is going to kill him, even though there's very little evidence for that, of course, when they do meet. And so you see in some way Jacob kind of putting things in order, sorting out his family, maybe for the first time making sure everyone's looked after and getting across the river and then remaining alone behind. And the language is so powerful when it describes the beginning of that story, the encounter with the man in the night, because you really have this sense of his absolute loneliness, right? The phrase our Christian siblings often use of the dark night of the soul. You very much feel like that's where Jacob is. He's in this stage where he's basically accepted that this might be his last night on earth and is, as a result, more vulnerable and more open to experiencing a transformative encounter than ever before. Let's just move on maybe to that mysterious encounter that Jacob has, as you say, in the depths of the night. Was it an angel? Who do you see this mysterious being? And what was the significance of the encounter? That's interesting. I This year, especially reading Breshit, for some reason, I've really gravitated towards a lot of the Midrashim in our tradition that explore a mythological dimension of the text. And Jacob is a really rich site for this because so many Midrashim develop this idea of Jacob as what to us is uncomfortably identified as basically a demigod. And this week's parasha is a huge amount of evidence regarding this idea that there's something supernatural about Jacob. And I think ultimately, the hardest way to read the story is probably the simplest, which is that he fights God and wins. And obviously, we're uncomfortable with that, because we don't like the idea that we can imagine God coming down in some kind of physical form. But notably, it doesn't identify it as an angel in the text. 
And the language that we often use when we talk about this obscures the reality, right? We say that, oh yes, he's named Yisrael because he wrestled with God. But actually, the story opens with a verb for wrestling, struggling, avak. But that's not the name he's given. He's not Avkiel. He's Yisrael. And the disconnect between those two is often lost on people who just want to see the story as Jacob the wrestler. But the explanation, the etymology given for his name, Kisarita im Elohim vanashim, that you actually prevailed over God and people, it implies there's something more than human about Jacob. And actually, when you look into the Midrashim around this, there are really deep sources for this idea. It's not just a one-off. There's at least four or five different places in different strata and different eras that talk about Jacob as being some kind of demigod, some kind of semi-divine being. There's a tradition that Jacob was actually an angel, that Yisrael was his original name. He was an angel who was sent down to earth in a human form and then forgot he was an angel. And so the encounter with the angel stroke God in the night is him remembering his identity rather than being given it, which is fascinating in some way. What does it mean to recollect who he truly was? And there's just rich traditions around his dream of the ladder, around his children and how they view him, around what Jacob means to us. It's actually, although probably bordering on what we would consider unacceptable theologically, it's really fascinating from the point of view of our cultural history of our predominant ancestor. So rich and all those references, intrigued to explore all of them, but maybe just to go off on a slight tangent, we encounter Jacob in a number of occasions at night with these dreams and so on. I wonder what the epiphany that we have as Jacob leaves home and this have in parallel with each other. The Midrashic tradition that sees Jacob as being more than human. And by the way, I think there's a great analogy to this figure of who he might be in other myths and other cultures as well. But we'll come back to that in a minute. But the the myths that actually are the basis of this idea really do zoom in on those two night encounters. The first one being, of course, the vision of the stairway, the ladder, the ziggurat, whatever it might be that he's imagining. And the other being his encounter with the the man of mystery at night. And it's really interesting about this mythological tradition is that it explains the strange language of his dream that happens earlier when it describes the angels coming down and then going up, which of course seems backwards in some way. It's rather going up and then coming down, whatever it is, the, the, the disorder of that story and the fact that it doesn't quite make sense is often the source of rabbinic speculation. And the mythological tradition, the Midrashim, it's actually in the Gemara, in Bavli and Hulin. There's this idea that they ascended the ladder, the angels ascended the ladder to look at the image above, and then they descended the ladder to look at the image below. Now, it doesn't really explore what this means. It uses this interesting word, yokona, which is an icon, right? It's the Greek word for an icon. And the implication, as explained by commentaries on the Talmud here, is actually the vision of Ezekiel, I know we're jumping all the way to Ezekiel, but the vision of Ezekiel of the chariot, the Merkava, in which there's four faces on it, one of which is a vulture, one of which is an ox, one of which is a lion, and the last of which is a human. This tradition would say that the human face was actually Jacob's face. It was Jacob's face carved into the Merkava. 
And so what the angels are doing, what the Talmud is explaining when they're going up and down the ladder, is they're going to check up above in heaven what the Merkava looks like. They're looking at the sculptured face of Jacob on the chariot and then coming back down to where he's sleeping on a rock at Luz and looking back and forth to check that this is the same guy. And the next line in the Talmud then says, they wish to hurt him. But then it quotes the Torah saying, the Lord stood over him. So there's a sense of kind of animosity towards him on behalf of the other angels. And then there's a sense that God is stepping in to protect him all of which is very evocative of other mystical traditions in Judaism, the Hechalot literature that imagines Moses going up to receive the Torah and being assaulted by angels. And it taps into this whole idea of someone who is actually trespassing beyond the boundaries of humanness. In a way that once Christianity enters the scene, we find very uncomfortable to talk about. But actually, before that, clearly was part of our tradition. Look forward to a reclamation What happens next, obviously, is that Jacob's name, as we've begun discussing, changes. And yet, of course, at the same time, Jacob is still used um, interchangeably, um, or at at least can be used alongside Israel. What, What do you make of the fact that going forward, both names are used? Mm. It is striking, isn't it? And I think it's, again, we kind of drift into somewhat Christian feeling theological territory. But I think if we take this idea seriously, that Jacob is more than he seems, which again, is hard considering his behavior is so mundanely human, but maybe that's part of what makes it appealing, is that the dual naming of him reflects a dual nature of him in some way. There's this incredible passage where I know we're jumping quite a bit here, but where Origen is commenting on the Gospel of John, and he quotes from one of these early Second Temple kind of Gnostic texts called the Prayer of Joseph, which we don't have the original of, but we have Origen quoting it in his commentary on John. And he says there about Jacob, Jacob says, I, Jacob, who speak to you, am also Israel. I am an angel of God, a ruling spirit. And Abraham and Isaac were created before every work of God. And I am Jacob, called Jacob by men, but my name is Israel, called Israel by God, a man seeing God, because I'm the firstborn of every creature which God caused to live. Now, obviously, theologically, it's horrifying. We're getting into the territory of the Logos coming down, the Word becoming flesh, etc. But if we look at these traditions in our own canon of Jacob being something uncannily unhuman, there's an idea here where actually to human beings, to his family, in the relationships when he acts the most human. He tends to be labeled Jacob, as he will be in the Dina story later in the parasha. But in those rare moments where he transcends that and exemplifies this semi-divine nature, if we can even call it that, he gets called by his true name, we might imagine, of Yisrael, right? Which doesn't mean wrestling. It means winning. It means prevailing. Rita is linked to a word like Sar, a commander, And that's a version of Jacob that actually we're quite uncomfortable with in many ways. But that's a version of Jacob that himself, he very rarely manages to access. The the Israel mentions are much fewer than the the Jacob mentions, even after this encounter. You've gone to uh, Oregon, um, which is um, fascinating. I I wonder if um, we might draw a Harry Potter um, parallel um, with his 
scar or or limp going forward following the wrestling and prevailing what do we make of this which obviously seems to be chiming with perhaps this human and extra human i mentioned that you're referencing it's really interesting the harry potter idea that somehow jacob is linked with god with the divine through his injury by him I don't know if that makes Jacob a kind of horcrux. I think that's probably a step too far. But the the notion that actually Jacob does what few people, or rather maybe what no one is able to do, is pretty much the Peshat. Now, obviously, Jacob's the one narrating this. But when he says, I have seen God face to face and survived, it doesn't really behoove us to ignore that. And we do. Why right? we ignore that and go, okay, sure, Jacob. And we much more gravitate towards Moses much later, telling us that no man can live, no man can see me and live. And the two seem obviously completely contradictory. How can Moses say, no man can see me and live? And Jacob says, I saw God and I'm fine. Unless either Jacob is lying, or he rather doesn't understand what happened. Or, as this mythological tradition would suggest, Jacob isn't a man. Maybe moving on then, it feels like this encounter in the night is so uh, intense that then the meeting with Esau the next day is maybe a bit of an anticlimax, perhaps. But what do you make of that encounter? It certainly perhaps feels like it should be. It perhaps feels like it is designed to come across as slightly enigmatic. Um, what, what do you make of the encounter? I find, it, like you say, it's a come down, isn't it? Because we, we've gone on this journey with Jacob from being a trickster to using guile to get what he wants. And it feels, and maybe I have my own agenda in this, but it feels like he's finally reached this point where he transcended all of that, right? At this moment of darkness and solitude, when he encounters his true self, and whatever that means, we can psychologize it as much as we need to. We were really hopeful for Jacob, the Yisrael that comes out of that encounter. We think, okay, maybe he's actually developed into who we need him to be our patriarch. Maybe he's become this slightly more than human being, or he's reacquainted himself with his true nature, as it might be. But then at the end of the story, when he literally ghosts Asav, I just feel heartbroken. Once again, he promises something that he doesn't do. He deceives, he lies, he cheats. He tells Esau he's going to follow him, and he doesn't. He just disappears. And I'm really gutted in some way by this, because I'm disappointed in Jacob. I'm invested at this point in his psychological and spiritual development. And then when he actually reverts back to his old ways, it, it is a depressing moment in some way, because it makes you realize, perhaps, that although humans can reach quite angelic heights, maybe. And there are moments when we can really transcend a lot of the things that draw us down into material reality. Ultimately, you can't really sustain that. And Jacob, as the story goes on, after this incredible encounter, which is unlike any other in the Torah, goes back to being primarily obsessed with his own well-being, worried about his own safety, even at the expense of Dina's honor, as it comes later in the parasha. And we feel, or I feel, Disappointed and a bit ashamed, actually, that Jacob doesn't rise to the status that he could, considering the encounter he has in the night. 
Perhaps finally, and actually just building on what you've been saying, obviously the children of Israel um, and going forward to today, of course, we bear his name. He's hardly the example that he might be. What does bearing his name mean going forward and indeed for us all today? I think that's probably the biggest challenge and in some way the current moment makes us really reckon with what our name represents to us and how we relate to our values and identity as a people. I think, you know, the references for this whole mythological tradition I've been quite preoccupied with at the moment. If you look at other traditions, there's two that really stand out to me. One is the Polynesian image of Maui, who many people will be familiar with from the Disney movie Moana, who is a demigod a culture hero, as anthropologists would call it, where he represents the origin of the people of Hawaii and other places and and their voyaging. And he's also a trickster. He's also like morally quite gray and a little bit mediocre. And even in the Disney version, you are relating to him both as what a hero and also as come on, you can do better than that. And there's a really interesting moment where we perhaps feel the same about Jacob. And the other analogy is Odysseus, I think, to jump radically in geography and time-wise, where similarly Odysseus is held up as this kind of culture hero of ancient Greece. He's praised for his wile, for his guile, for his ability to deceive, but in a good intention. His wisdom manifests itself in a way that's often very focused on deception, but nonetheless, he's hailed for it. And Similarly, he serves the role of being the originator of a people, being the ancestor that's looked to as a representative of the values of that people. And I guess, in some way, one of the main lessons I learned from one of my teachers, Dr. David Kramer, is that Jews are people too. And Jews are people too. And our ultimate ancestor, our namesake, is also a culture hero, trickster, demigod, perhaps. He's very human, and also has the opportunity to be quite divine, perhaps. He represents who we are in many ways, but we might not always like his actions. But at the end of the day, it's a association with a person who succeeds and prevails, as his name ultimately indicates, he prevails over God and humans. And there's something about that perhaps can be inspiring to us, perhaps especially at the current moment that Jacob, for all his many faults, and Israel in his many guises, is someone who ultimately succeeds in what he's attempting to do. And the fact that we're still a people of Israel today, naming ourselves by him and calling ourselves by him, suggests that there's some real weight to the idea that he did prevail. And I suppose we, we never worship our ancestors, and I think that's important. We can appreciate him as a culture hero, as a figure of myth and of midrash, while also recognizing that we might not want to be like him. And I think that's quite a healthy relationship to have, actually, to the character and to the text. Rabbi Adam, thank you so much for exploring with us today and sharing some all sorts of insights and traveling the distance. A reminder to everyone that you can buy our book, Voices of Hope, edited by myself and Rabbi Adam, 36 Essays in Response to 7th of October from Izun Books 
amazon.com and also from Amazon. Everybody, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find more information about all of our work on our sites, louisjacobs.org and also jewishquest.org. Do tune in again next week as we continue the quest together. Mm -hmm.